Good morning, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and I will be speaking from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. You could turn there in your Bibles. We'll also have it projected on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting from verse 9. Would you give your attention and reverence, for this is the reading of God's word. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is God's word. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Last Sunday, we heard about a life pleasing to God, regarding sexual purity. And please note, sexual purity is an immensely important part, an important component of pleasing the Lord in this life. But it's not the only component. In our passage today, Apostle Paul goes on to talk about pleasing God specifically in the areas of work and grief. And we see how those two areas are particularly transformed in light of the second coming. Now, before we get into uh, the nitty-gritty of what this passage talks about, I did want to give a quick note on the second coming of Jesus. There really is so much we can talk about when it comes to eschatology. It's a big word that just means the theology of the last things, the study of the end times. And different Christians have different understandings of what exactly is going to happen when Jesus comes back. And it's a difficult topic for sure because The scriptures that talk about the second coming, so many of them are filled with imagery and symbolism. And it's not always as straightforward as most of the Bible is. Uh, And people have different views and we have our own views as a church. I have my own views as a pastor and as a Christian. And of course, in, in, the, in the areas that we disagree, it doesn't mean we're not brothers and sisters. Uh, and yet we do wanna be clear about what we do believe. And there's one particular theological question I want to bring up because it's relevant to this passage that we just read. And here's that question. It's, what do we believe about the rapture? The rapture. You may have heard that word before. Maybe you haven't. I would say here at Christ Central, we don't really use that word that often. And uh, this, this word comes from verse 17 of our text, actually. In verse 17, it says that we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together 
with them, those who have been resurrected in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this word that is translated here as caught up is actually the same word that the word rapture comes from. Now, there's nothing wrong to believe that when Jesus returns, we'll be raptured and we'll be with Jesus. That's what our passage literally says. But there's this other understanding of the rapture. And uh, I think it's been made popular, especially in the 90s, a long time ago. For some of you, you don't remember this. But in the 90s, there was a book series called Left Behind. And it even had multiple movie adaptations. And in these books and in these movies, there are all these scenes where very suddenly about half of the population just disappears. You, you, suddenly, someone's walking around in the mall and then they look and their loved one is gone and instead they just see that person's clothes and their shoes on the ground and, and they vanished. Uh, there's, there's one scene where there's a pilot and his co-pilot suddenly disappears and he has to take control of the plane before it crashes. And I know this sounds a lot like the Avengers movies, but this is actually way before that. And uh, this is actually a depiction of a certain view of the rapture that Jesus will swiftly and secretly bring up certain, uh, the people that belong to him. He'll bring up the Christians into heaven. And then uh, this theology says that uh, the people who are remaining, the non-Christians, they will be on this earth for a certain period of time, usually seven years. Now, the thing to note that, uh, that we see in our passage today is right before they talk about being caught up in the air with Jesus, being raptured up to Jesus, it says in verse 16 of our text that there's going to be a cry of command and a voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And what this tells us is that when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a secret. When Jesus comes back, the whole world is going to know it. When we think about the sound of the trumpet of God and the, and the voice of the archangel, those aren't quiet sounds. The whole world, whether you're Christian or not, will know that Jesus has returned. And upon that return, that's when he's going to bring up uh, those who belong to him. The first coming of Jesus in, during Christmas, that was, of course, fairly quiet. But please note, in the first coming, Jesus came in humility but in the second coming, Jesus will come in glory and you won't be able to miss it. It's impossible to miss it. Uh, and when Jesus returns, he'll raise those who have died. And that's what our passage tells us, that those who are dead in Christ will be raised up and brought with him as well. He will judge both the living and the dead. Many scriptures tell us that. And he will make all things new. He will make a new heavens and a new earth, and even our bodies will be made new. Now, of course, in our passage, Paul's aim is not to just give a theological lesson, but he uses this theology to practically encourage the Christians uh, in Thessalonica as well as the Christians who exist today and throughout the ages. And what Paul encourages is that when we look forward to the second coming, when we live in light of the second coming of Jesus, it causes us to live a life pleasing to God, specifically in our passage, once again, in the areas of work and grief. So here's the first thing we see. A life pleasing to God in light of the second coming means this. We work without idleness. We work without being idle. Verse 11 of our text, it says this. 
Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. What does living quietly, minding your own affairs, minding your own business, and working with your hands, what, what do those three things have to do with each other? And I would say quite simply, those three things happen when you are not idle. When you are not idle. When you're idle, when you're, when you're not productive, when you're not working, when you're not uh, providing for yourself, you do tend to start becoming not quiet, living quietly, but living disruptively. You do tend to start minding other people's affairs and not your own affairs because you're not busy with your own affairs. And of course, when you are productive and working hard and working with your hands, as the scriptures tells us, then we won't be idle. Throughout both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, we see over and over again Paul warning the church not to be idle. And we see him over, over and over again commending hard work, even saying, I was an example for you of hard work. And it's not 100% clear why he has to talk about idleness and working hard so much to the Thessalonian church. It might be as simple as they just struggled with laziness, maybe. I do think a more educated guess might be uh, that it has something to do with the second coming. Paul talks a whole lot about the second coming to the Thessalonian church in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And an educated guess for why he talks about idleness and working hard so much is that perhaps the Thessalonian church, because they were so keen on the second coming, because they were thinking a lot about the second coming, which isn't a bad thing, they were misapplying it. They were saying, you know what? Because Jesus is coming back soon, and because Jesus is coming back, and, and this isn't the only life and the only world that we're going to live in, we don't really have to work that much. We don't have to really do that much here in this life. And Paul comes back to the Thessalonians and he addresses that misunderstanding and he says, no, no, no. A life pleasing to God in light of the second coming is a life where you work hard. It's a life where you're productive. It's a life where you're constructive and not disruptive. It's a life when you're not caught up in other people's affairs because you're busy with your own affairs. Like Moses says in Psalm 90, 12, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The second coming reminds us that our days are indeed numbered and we want to make the most of our days, working and not idle, productive and not disruptive. And this is ultimately pleasing to God because this, as our, as our passage tells us, this is how we live out our brotherly and sisterly love. The way we work, the way that we're uh, contributing to society, the way that we're productive in our circles is the way that we love and serve one another. And our passage in verse 12 goes on to say that this is actually how we walk properly toward outsiders. This is our witness to the world. Please, Christian, do not underestimate the impact for the sake of the gospel of just good old, plain old hard work, working hard, doing your job well, working with the heart of a servant, working in a way that you're not a busybody and, and caught up in other people's affairs. Please do not underestimate what a witness that is. 
I do have one caveat for us as we talk about pleasing God in the way that we work without idleness. And it comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. A very similar passage. And I want you to note as we look at it together, it says this. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, busy in other people's business. Please note that in this passage, it says, if anyone is not willing to work. That word willing is so important there. It doesn't say if anyone is not able to work or if anyone happens to not be working, but if anyone is not willing to work. You and I all know we're in a unique circumstance during this pandemic, and there are many who have lost their jobs. There are many who want to work but can't work. And of course, the, Paul's warnings against idleness are not necessarily falling on those people. Those are people who are not able to work. It's not because they're not willing. And of course, even apart from the pandemic, there might be certain life situations. You might have just had a baby. And because of that, you're not working. You're, you are doing a whole other kind of work, uh, but you're not necessarily getting a paycheck because you're taking time off from work or, or you stopped working. Once again, that's not what Paul is talking about. But he, he, he's talking about the mindset, the heart of idleness, which he is warning against, that we are to work without idleness. Please note this. It's actually possible where you're getting a paycheck because you have a job, but you're still idle. It's possible to have a job, but you're still a busy body. You're still caught up in other people's business instead of your own work. That's still possible. And it's also possible to not have a job, to not be getting a paycheck, but to still be productive and contributing to the, to the circles around you and, and the society around you. So that's the first thing we see. A life pleasing to God in light of the second coming is we work without idleness. But the second way that we please God in light of the second coming is this. We grieve without hopelessness. We grieve without hopelessness. Verse 13 of our text says this. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The Thessalonian Christians, they were a little confused specifically about the second coming and people who died before Jesus came back. They were worried that people who died, they weren't going to be able to enjoy the second coming. When they weren't going to be able to be blessed by the second coming. And we, and we have to know this. First of all, if you are a believer in Christ and you die, your body goes to the grave, but your spirit instantly goes to the Lord in heaven. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23 tells us that. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 tells us that. Uh, sometimes we call this the intermediate state, where you're, you're with heaven, you're with God after you die. But even for the dearly departed who are with Jesus now in heaven, they're in bliss, they're in joy in, he in heaven, in paradise, they too are still looking forward to something. They are also looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Because when Jesus returns, just like our passage tells us, even the dead in Christ will be raised up and they will get to be with Jesus, not only spiritually, but now even physically in a much more full and perfect way. 
And the Thessalonians didn't know that. So Paul has to tell them this here. He has to tell them, yes, when Jesus returns, the dead who belong to him will be raised and they'll be with him and the living and the dead together will be joined with Christ in, all the, in, in the new heavens and the new earth and all things will be made new. And therefore, don't grieve hopelessly. Don't grieve like the world grieves. Now, of course, there is still so much room for grief. Paul does not say here, don't grieve at all. Paul is saying, don't grieve without hope. But there is a place, there is an appropriateness, of course, to grieve. The scriptures tell us over and over again, there's even commands to grieve, mourn, and wail. We see plenty of examples of godly Christians lamenting before God. We, haven't, we even have a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. And most importantly, perhaps, even Jesus himself grieved. Jesus himself wept when his good friend Lazarus died as he joined Lazarus' family and loved ones as they were all grieving together. The scriptures tell us Jesus wept. Even though he knew he was gonna raise him up, he would still grieve this loss and this death and, and the pain that that brought. As human beings, we need to grieve. We're called to grieve. That's actually the way we, we deal with the many sufferings of this life. And of course, there are plenty of reasons to grieve. During this pandemic, of course, perhaps like never before, we're actually counting, we're, we're keeping track. We, we have this number of how many people have died and we're following that every day almost. And we get to see uh, and grieve all this death around us. In the news, especially with George Floyd, uh, we see unjust death. We see people who are murdered. We see people who are dying that shouldn't be dead. And we grieve. And of course, it often hits closer to home. It's not stuff that we see in the news. But we grieve when we get sick. We grieve when our loved ones get sick. When our loved ones pass away. There are plenty of reasons to grieve. And Apostle Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us, yes, grieve, but don't grieve like the world grieves. Grieve with hope. And there are three ways that I want to share with you, typically, that we grieve. There are three ways I want to share with you. There's a bad way, a better way, and a best way. The first way that we might grieve here in this, uh, in this world and in this culture is escape. That's the bad one. It's, it's, it's a form of non-grieving almost, where suffering is avoided, ignored, numbed at all costs. It's escape. It's escapism. It's not dealing with and addressing and accepting the sufferings and pains of this life. The theologian D.A. Carson, he once wrote in an article about the modern Western mindset that refuses to look at death, to plan for death, to live in the light of death, to expect death. He actually goes on to write in that article, he tells a story about how uh, there was a woman in his church who was very sick and she was in the hospital and the church had a gathering, a prayer meeting where they came together to pray for this woman and D.A. Carson's own wife was the one who actually ended up leading in prayer and in that prayer, she said something along the lines of, 
If this beloved sister should die, Lord, help her to die well. Help her to die in, in a way where she's ready to meet with you and that there is still the joy of the gospel in her heart. And, and she prayed that simple prayer uh, after praying a lot of other things as well, praying for healing as well. And after she prayed that, uh, D.A. Carson writes that some people at the church were upset, that there are people in the church who were mad at her. How, how dare you pray that she might die? How dare you mention that in the prayer? And of course, for D.A. Carson, that was a stark reminder of the culture we live in, the escapist culture we often live with that doesn't want to even address death, even in our prayers. With escapism, sometimes when hardship does come, instead of coping and processing and mourning and grieving, sometimes we just try to drink the pain away. Or sometimes we try to smoke the pain away or we try to play the pain away. Whatever it takes to just numb yourself. But that never actually addresses the pain. That never actually does anything with the pain. There's even a, a, a pseudo-Christian form of escapism. It's called the prosperity gospel. Uh, if you watched a recent uh, Netflix documentary called American Gospel, Christ Alone, it's a whole documentary that talks quite a bit about the prosperity gospel, also known as the health and wealth gospel. And basically this, this kind of false gospel uh, promises that if you follow Jesus, you'll never have pain, you'll never be poor, and you'll, as, as the, the name suggests, you'll have health and you'll have wealth. Of course, it's terribly unbiblical. It's also terribly unhealthy because when you do end up suffering, as we all will, it feels like God failed. It feels like my faith failed. And this too is just another form of escapism, ignoring and avoiding suffering, but it's dressed up as gospel preaching. And when, you, when your uh, form of grieving is escape, what, what ultimately ends up happening is when the, the sufferings that are unavoidable and unignorable come your way, it will ultimately leave you devastated. That's what escape does. That's why escape is the bad way to grieve. There is a better way that we see in our lives and even in the scriptures, and that's resilience. Resilience is basically a mindset where you understand that suffering ultimately makes you better, makes you stronger. Uh, in, in, in the scriptures, you might see something like uh, Apostle Peter talking about how trials refine us uh, like, like gold and silver in the fire. In the world, you often see uh, athletes displaying a lot of resilience, an ethos of resilience. Phrases like, no pain, no gain. That's a resilient phrase. Uh, Back when I was much younger and I tried to lift weights a lot with my best friend, Philip, he would often say to me, pain is weakness leaving the body. And he had to say that to me over and over again because I was always, always quitting. I was always trying to stop prematurely in our workouts. And he'd always have to say that pain is weakness leaving the body. I once heard a, or I recently heard an, a graduation speech online for the class of 2020 was a very resilient speech. 
where it talked about how for the class of 2020, whether we're talking about high school seniors or college seniors, it's very unfortunate that in these last few months of their high school career or college career, they were not able to be with their classmates. Uh, They had to stay at home. They weren't able to get a conventional graduation ceremony. And uh, in this speech, the, the person giving the speech says, See it as something better. See this graduation as the best graduation. Not because it's just like all the other graduations in previous years, but because it's so unique. Because you're in a graduation where you're in in a circumstance that will ultimately make you stronger. It's It's a circumstance where people will look back on the year of 2020 and say that was a very unique and special and strengthening year for for us all. And his point is, this is even better. This is an even better graduation. It's not a bad message at all. I would think that all Christians would agree with uh, this ethos of resilience, this, this mindset of resilience as we grieve, as we really grieve the very real sufferings and hardships of our lives. But I will say this, self-improvement, getting better, getting stronger, getting wiser, in and of itself can only be so comforting. It's a great thing, but it can only be so comforting. And there is still a better way. And it's what First Thessalonians tells us. And that better way is hope. The best way, actually, is hope. It's not just a vague, generic sense of hope, but a Christ-centered hope. This has all the benefits of resilience, but it's so much more. Because this is a mindset where ultimately when you grieve with hope, suffering drives us deeper into the arms of our God. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. Take a look at some of these uh, verses from our text today. In verse 14 of our text, Paul says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Those people who, who you're grieving and you're mourning rightfully, appropriately, please recognize God will bring them and he will, those people will be with him. Verse 17 of our text says, and so we, those who are alive and those who are dead, will be brought together with Christ and we will always be with the Lord. And lastly, he concludes in verse 18 by saying, encourage one another with these words. This is such an encouragement. But note this, this can only be an encouragement. This can only be encouraging if being with the Lord is something you really want. It can only be true uh, uh, hope and encouragement and consolation if being with the Lord is the ultimate good. And, it, and Paul is really trying to encourage his people here. He's not just saying uh, some, some, just some nice words. He's not just giving mere sentiment. But he is talking about the realest, the truest of hopes. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters at home, if you should sound, uh, if this should sound like mere sentiment to you, if this should feel like mere sentiment to you, just nice words, please take note of this. Our hope in Christ is fueled by our affection for Christ. If you think about it, hoping in Christ will really only be as strong as our affection for Christ. To put it another way, a life pleasing to God whether it be in our sexuality or in our work or in the way that we hope in Christ, even in the midst of our grief, is first a life pleasing.
pleased by God. We can, we can only live this life that is pleasing to God if we are first pleased by God. If God pleases us, if being, the thought of being with him trumps all other pleasures of this world and of this life. And the Thessalonians and you and I can only be hopeful, this hopeful, truly hopeful, even in the midst of death all around us and death in our lives. If being with Christ is the ultimate good, if, if Jesus is the one who is altogether lovely, as we just sang earlier today, if Jesus is the one who you just want to always be with, if Jesus is the one who you will never get tired of being with, and as we recognize that that indeed is who Jesus is, and that Jesus is so great when we are not so great, that Jesus is altogether lovely, altogether worthy when we are not lovely and worthy, it will stir and raise our affections. Despite all the ways we fail to live a life pleasing to God. Once again, be it in our sexuality or our work or in, in the way that we put our hopes in all the things of this world instead of Jesus. In the midst of all of those failures and all of that sin, Jesus would take that wrath that all of that deserves and he would take it upon himself on a cross. He would save us from the wrath to come. And he would give us this great hope of being with him in this life, even now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and even more so at death when our spirit goes to join him, and in in the fullest way at the second coming, even with our resurrected bodies. And that hope gives us a resource that transforms us from the inside out, that causes us to live a life pleasing to God more and more. One of my favorite hymns, that I, th- lately is a, a hymn called More Love to Thee. It's an old hymn from the 1800s written by an author named Elizabeth Prentice. And the context in which she wrote that hymn is particularly remarkable. Uh, in the 1850s, in a span of just three months, Elizabeth Prentice lost two of her children, a four-year-old and her newborn. They both died in the span of three months And then four years later, another child became fatally ill. And you can only imagine, we can all imagine, that that she was so filled with sorrow and distress. Uh, One author even writes, she was inconsolable. And in the midst of that grief, in the midst of that sorrow, she ran into the arms of the Lord. She came to the Lord in prayer and in the word. And it was in that time that she came up with all four stanzas of that beloved hymn, More Love to Thee. And what stands out to me in that hymn, one, one, something that's been popping out as, I, as we sing that hymn together, uh, even at home, is the third verse. Here's how it goes. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers. Sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. And whoever's taking care of the slides can just leave those lyrics up as I, as I talk a little bit more about these lyrics. It's interesting, isn't it? She, she says in this hymn that sorrow, grief, and pain are the sweet messengers of God. She calls them sweet messengers. 
And if, if you just stop there, you might say, wow, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Prentice is a very remarkable woman. She's a resilient woman. But we don't just stop there. It, it, it's so important what she says right after. What makes sorrow, grief, and pain sweet messengers? The only thing that makes them sweet messengers is when they can sing with me more love, O Christ, to thee. In other words, sorrow, grief, all the sufferings of this life, even when death stings us in this life, if it causes us to run deeper into the arms of God, if it causes us to say, Christ, would you cause me to love you more in light of this grief, in the midst of this grief, in the midst of this sorrow, then they are indeed sweet messengers. That's the point of that hymn. They are sweet messengers when they cause us to say, Lord, I want to love you more. Lord, I need, a, I need you more. When they cause us to say, along with the psalmist in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When our sufferings cause us to say that, that's true gospel hope. That's what grieving with hope looks like. And that's, that's exactly what North Korean Christians had a couple decades ago when they were martyred for their faith. There's a famous story from the organization Voice of the Martyrs where these North Korean Christians were being uh, commanded to denounce their faith and they were threatened with the death of their children. Their children were killed because they didn't renounce their faith. They were threatened with torture and excruciating pain, uh, an excruciatingly painful death. And they didn't renounce their faith. You know what the, how the story goes? As they were dying, painfully, they sang, more love to thee. Even in the midst of such grief, they were able to say, Christ, would you cause us to love you more? Would even these sufferings, these terrible sufferings, these sufferings that we wouldn't wish on anyone, would they cause us to love you more? Would they cause us to run deeper into your arms? There's a more modern, a more recent uh, Example of this, I mentioned that Netflix documentary, uh, American Gospel, and one, the, probably the most powerful thing in that documentary is the story of grace of a woman named Catherine Berger. This is a woman who encountered so much physical suffering in her life where she had all sorts of different conditions, different diseases, uh, and she's still experiencing them to this day uh, that are basically slowly killing her. And she unflinchingly is able to say, if I could go back to my life when I was healthy, but I didn't know Jesus, I wouldn't. My life right now, as my body wastes away, is so much better than when I was healthy because now I have Jesus and I didn't have Jesus then. People like Catherine Berger, like Elizabeth Prentice, like those North Korean martyrs, they are and they were a people who could live such a life pleasing to God, not because they're, they're just so much better than us, they're such remarkable people, but because they were a people who even in the midst of unbelievable grief, they were first pleased by God. They saw the loveliness of Jesus. They saw the worthiness of Jesus. They saw the unworthiness of their own souls and yet saw the grace and love demonstrated especially at the cross to save us from the wrath to come, to bring us into the presence of God at death and even more fully at the second coming. Brothers and sisters, as we consider a life pleasing to God, 
Yes, let us pursue that. Let's pursue a life pleasing to God. But we can't do that until we are first pleased by God. Our hope in Christ will be fueled by our affection for Christ. Would you see and look at our beautiful Savior? Look back to the first coming of Jesus. Look back and see his sacrifice, his compassion, his love for you, especially demonstrated on the cross. And look forward to the second coming. Look forward and recognize that our time is short. Our witness to a dying world is urgent. And the ways that we work and even grieve will show this world the beauty of our Savior. It'll show this world the beauty of a hope that this world could never offer. And for those of you who are experiencing suffering right now, I know that there are many of you who are suffering right now. Would you fall deeper into the arms of our God? That is the best place that you can ever be, especially in the midst of our grief. And would you be encouraged that one day we will all be with the Lord in fullness and in perfection, especially at the second coming. The false preachers of this world, they promise something that is not true. They promise that if you follow Jesus, you will never have pain. That's not biblical, that's not true, that's not healthy. But the gospel preachers of this world, the preachers who preach the truth, the the preacher that is standing in front of you now on your screen, we can promise this. We, we cannot promise that if you follow Jesus, you'll never have pain, but we can promise this. We can promise you that if you follow Jesus, if you hope in Jesus, if you, if you, as you grow in your affection for Jesus, you will gain a hope that this world can never offer. You will gain a hope that causes you to even grieve in a way that this world does not grieve. It'll, it'll, it'll make you able to experience grief and, and come out of grief and, and come through grief in a way that this world could never do. That will be promised. Grow in your love and affection for Jesus. Look more and more at your Savior and you'll have this resource for when the troubles come, for when the sufferings come, for when our death, which we will all experience, comes. And that is a promise. That is a gospel promise. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We do thank you, Lord, that he came to rescue sinners like us here. He came to live that perfect life that we fail to live, perfectly obedient to you, perfectly pleasing to you. And he died the sinner's death, though he never sinned. And he rose again to be the firstborn of, of among many brothers that we too can now look forward to the second coming and we can look forward to when we will be with you in fullness that you will raise up those who have passed away and you will gather up your people and we will be with you for all eternity. Lord, I pray that that would be a true and real hope for everyone who's listening in right now. Lord, that this would not just be a sentiment, that this would not just be nice words, but this would be an anchor for our souls, that it might be something that's transformative as we continue to work and seek to be a good witness and productive and contributing in our work. 
And as we seek to grieve in a way that is not like this world, Lord, would it show you off? Would it show the glory and the beauty and the hope that comes only in Christ? Lord, help us, we pray. Stir and grow our affections for Jesus, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.